I know that many of us, myself included, when we face hardships or discouragement like we're facing right now, we turn to other things to comfort us. So some of us turn to control. We go to control, to control whatever part of the situation that we can. Unfortunately, that is not working right now uh, at all. We don't have a lot of control. Some of us might turn to food or to drink. Uh, We might turn to these things to comfort us or to temporarily ease the pain or the, the mental difficulty. Some of us might find comfort in ignorance, in simply turning off the news, simply unplugging from everything that's going on and kind of hiding in your own hole and saying, you know, there's not a lot going on. I'm just going to be ignorant about it. But this isn't going to go away. Some of us find comfort in substances or travel. Uh, Travel, obviously, you're not really (laughs) doing a whole lot of. And uh, I was thinking this week, it's virtually impossible to travel, but it actually is virtually possible, not virtu- but only virtually, not physically. Some of us may turn to music. We may turn to research, just try to, again, control, figure out more. And some of us might turn to other forms of comfort. But none of these things are sufficient. None of them are sufficient. You already know that, especially when life is hard and hard for a long time. But God does desire to comfort his people. And that's true and lasting comfort. He desires to comfort his people in hardship. And that seems probably obvious that God wants to desire to comfort his people, but it's so true and we need to hold on to that. So you need to know this. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and are struggling in hardship or difficulty or discouragement, God wants to comfort you. And I want to say this, even even if the situation you are in right now is a result of of God's discipline in your life because of your own sin. God wants to comfort you in that position. That's the truth that we're going to see from Isaiah chapter 40 today. So the word comfort, it means to give strength or hope. And unlike all the other temporary comforts we chase that leave us discouraged and empty, ultimately, God's comfort leaves us strengthened. And the Bible testifies over and over and over again to various people that have encountered hardships that God comforts, and that that comfort satisfies us. And so Isaiah chapter 40, that's where we're turning. It's going to answer this question. How does God comfort his people? Now, before we actually get into the passage, and I know I mentioned it a few times, this is a passage we're going to. You have to have a little bit of background for Isaiah chapter 40 to make sense. And if you're like me, sometimes keeping the timeline of what's going on in the Bible is difficult, trying to keep it all straight and what, what happens where and when. And so I just want to take two or three minutes to kind of set the context for Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah is a prophet to God's people. God's people is the nation of Israel. God called a man named Abraham, and he called him to be the father of a nation, and that nation was called Israel, after the name of his son, Jacob, whose name turned to Israel. And so we know these people as the Israelites, or some call them the Jews, after Jacob's son, Judah. The Jews, this is God's chosen people, the people he had chosen to work through to show his blessing to the world. And he made a covenant and a sacred agreement with the Israelites that they were to be obedient to him and follow him and then that he would bless them and that he would work through them to bless the world. But sadly, like so many of us, Israel has their ups and downs, right? They they have these periods of obedience where they're like, yes, we'll follow the Lord and they follow and they follow. Then they start to drift. Then they rebel against God. 
then God disciplines them, and then he restores them. And the pattern happens over and over and over and over again. And the time when Isaiah is prophesying in the 8th century BC is a period of time when Israel is on the decline. It's not doing good. It's doing terrible, actually. The Israel kingdom of Israel is actually split into two. So there's a northern part of Israel now called Israel, which is a little bit confusing. Okay, so sometimes when Israel is being referred to, it's the northern kingdom of this divided kingdom. Sometimes it's the whole thing. And then there's the southern kingdom of Judah. And Isaiah's hanging out in Judah. That's where he spends his time. He's prophesying to Judah. He's very familiar with Jerusalem, which is the capital city of Judah. And he's talking to them about how awful they've been. He's prophesying for God. He's telling them, you guys are blowing it. You're messing up huge. And there's going to be judgment. During the time Isaiah is actually ministering, the the world power is the Assyrians. And the Assyrians actually take hold and exile the northern kingdom of Israel. Okay, so they, they exile them. The Assyrians take them. That's around 722 BC. And they are threatening to do the same to the southern part of Judah. And Isaiah tells them that. And Judah, miraculously, by God's provision, is spared. They actually are attacked by Assyria. Assyria takes a whole bunch of cities, but they don't take Jerusalem yet. So in 722, down to the, I think it's around 700 is when Assyria then attacks the southern part of Judah. And they're okay. They survive for a time. But Isaiah tells them, your time is coming. He prophesies, you will be exiled, not by Assyria, but by Babylon, the next world power. So Judah hangs on for another hundred years till about 586, a little more than a hundred years till about 586 BC, and then they are exiled. And so when Isaiah is writing chapter 40, it's interesting. The voice of Isaiah in chapter 40 is directed towards the future exiles in Babylon. But he's talking to the current people in Judah. It's a little confusing. So just imagine, I'm speaking to you here today. Imagine I'm preaching a sermon, but I'm like, I'm going to preach a sermon to the you of a hundred years from now when you're in exile in Babylon, or hopefully we're not in exile in Babylon. <laughs> but if, imagine I'm preaching to you, but it's a message for the future as well. And so there's these two audiences you kind of got to keep in mind. Okay, when Isaiah is preaching chapter 40, it's for the future exiles in Babylon, but it's also for us to hear today. So these exiles in Babylon that he's preaching to would have been super discouraged because they're exiled, not only because of the practical difficulties of living in exile, but also because they were experiencing doubt over the promises of God. You can imagine God's chosen this people to work through. And if you're in exile, that does not look good for God working through you. It looks like the exact opposite. And so to these captives, God uses Isaiah to deliver a message of comfort. So how does God comfort his people in their hardship? He does it this way. He does it by assuring them that the war is over. So now let's jump into Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. It reads there, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. God's compassion to his people is really clear. Right out the gates, he's like, comfort, comfort. He's commanding his prophets to comfort the people of Israel. 
even though they're in exile. He calls them my people. Remember, the reason they're in exile is because they were foolish and disobedient. They had rebelled against God. They had been very much not in line with his law. So God exiled them, but he still calls them his people. And he still wants to comfort these people. And he tells the prophet to speak tenderly to them, demonstrating that God has not abandoned his promises and that even though he was very firm in his discipline, he's still a loving father. It's also neat that he calls them Jerusalem. So they're in Babylon. Their city, their beloved city is called Jerusalem and he identifies them with their beloved city, even though they're not in Jerusalem. And so he just reminds them again, their identity isn't built on their current circumstances, which that's a great message for us. Our identity isn't built on our current circumstances. So the message the prophet's going to deliver to these captive is good news. The war is over. The time of hardship is over. So obviously when Isaiah's message comes to them, eventually it's at the end of their exile. He's proclaiming it's over. And that's obviously good news that their sin has been pardoned. It's been paid for. They're not destined to stay in Babylon forever. God's going to continue to fulfill his promises. So just imagine for a moment that you're in exile and you've been in exile for years and years and years. You're not in your city. You're not in your home city. You don't own things because you're in exile. It's difficult. Culturally, it's different. You're living under oppression. And then you get the message, it's over. It's actually done. That's a huge comfort. Phew, the exile is done. And it would have been a comfort also to those in Isaiah's time, 720, or uh, sorry, in seven, you know, 700 BC, 100 years before this happens, because they would know, yeah, actually the warfare, a lot of their hardship is still to come, but it has an expiry date. So if you are facing some uncertain hardship in the future, maybe a cancer diagnosis, and you were to know that today, but you know that you come out on the other side, that makes it entirely different than if you face it, but you have no idea if you're going to make it. God's people receive word ahead of time. There's going to be an end to the exile. This hardships for a season, but there's an end to it. God's going to deliver them and keep his promises. The phrase that's there in verse two, it says, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. When you read that, you may think, that's kind of weird. It sounds like they received twice as much punishment as they deserved. And you may think, that seems kind of unfair. What probably is going on here is not the idea of actually like two times like an unjust payment, but more of like a, a full payment. This word is also used in Job, and it's kind of got the idea of two-sided. And so it's like the, the seen sins of Israel and the unseen sins of Israel have all been paid for, have been taken care of. So God's saying it's done. It's completely paid for. There's not going to be like a, a trick, extra seven years of exile tacked on that you weren't expecting. It's paid for. When it comes to our battle against sin, the words it's over are the best words you could possibly hear. And for Isaiah and his listeners, they didn't have the full knowledge yet of what was to come that Jesus was actually prophesied in this text. But we actually know that. We know that Jesus came, that Jesus died. We celebrated his death, burial, and resurrection today. And Jesus, if you remember, when he was hanging on the cross, 
said three words that are entirely life-altering. He said the words, it is finished. It is finished. When God speaks those words tenderly to you, that changes everything. It is finished. Just insert your name, John, Catherine, Chris, whoever it is. Chris, it is finished. I don't write a lot of things in my Bible, but you can write in your Bible, in the margins or in the front, it is finished. And come back to that over and over and over again because the sin has been paid for. We have the advantage historically of being able to look back at the cross. They could only look forward, kind of dimly figuring it out. We have clarity. Jesus has paid for it. Sadly, however, many people don't live that way. Years ago, I came across this news article about a fascinating man, and I may have told some of you about him before. His name's Hiro Onoda. He was an Imperial Japanese Army intelligence officer who fought in World War II. Okay, so he fought in World War II, and at the time when World War II ended in 1945, this guy and some comrades were hanging out in the jungles of the Philippines. And so they didn't actually hear the message or see the news that the war is over, and so they kept on fighting. They kept on fighting, fighting. Eventually, some leaflets they came across when they were raiding villages, they came across some leaflets that said, the war is over. Come out of the the bushes, like surrender. And they didn't believe it because they thought that's propaganda designed to flush us out. Well, they actually, his commanding officer from the Japanese army actually signed orders for him to surrender they flew airplanes over and dropped leaflets with these orders to surrender. And they looked at them again, he and his comrades and a few of them, I think four or five of them, and they looked and they thought, no, this is propaganda. This is designed to flush us out. They took letters from family members and photographs, flew airplanes over and dropped those on these guys. And they still thought it was propaganda. And slowly... Over years, they continued to hide out and fight. And one by one, either these men around Hiru surrendered or they actually got killed in skirmishes with the local village police. And it took years until one brave Japanese man actually ventured into the jungles to find Hiru and communicate to him the war's over. And it took actually... He didn't believe it still. So it took this guy going back and getting his commanding officer years later to come in person and tell him, surrender, it's over. You want to know what year that was? It was 1974. That's 29 years. 29 years, this guy was hanging out in the bush fighting a war that was over. 29 years of his life wasted fighting a battle and believing a battle was going on that was done. And that, I believe, is such a good picture for what goes on in the life of so many people, where we spend our entire lives believing we have to fight for our lives. We have to fight against sin. We have to earn our way to God. But God, in his grace, through the words of Jesus on the cross, says, it's finished. And some, some of us, maybe even here today, believe that's religious propaganda. I'm not going to get vulnerable. I don't believe that's actually true. And God's word reminds us, no, it's absolutely true. 
And don't waste 29 years of your life fighting that war that's already over. It's already over. It is finished. Your warfare is over. Your sin's been paid for. The only thing you need to do is believe it and surrender. Believe it and surrender and accept that free gift that Jesus Christ is offering. Those are words of comfort. So no matter else what we face in life, no matter how many lockdowns, no matter how many diseases we face, no matter how many relational conflicts we face, it's finished. You will never stand condemned to hell. If you are in Christ, you will never be condemned. You will never be found guilty. And the words of Romans 8, verse 31 and 32 apply to you. When Paul says this, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So my question to you and to me is, do we live like that? Do we live like the war is over? That it is finished? Or do we carry the shame of what we've done? Or perhaps even, perhaps even the fear of what we might do in the future? And do we carry that and let that define us? It is finished. Those are the words that we take great comfort in. And let me ask you this as well. When we seek to encourage and comfort others, do we point them to that? Do we point them and offer them the encouragement? Or do we just say, when they're discouraged, here's another slice of pie. Maybe you should unplug from the news from a bit. You know, that's going to help. No, we point them to the cross. The greatest comfort you will be able to offer others is to point back to the greatest comfort that God offers to us, that the war is over. The second way that God comforts his people is by reminding them that they are part of God's bigger story. And so we're going to turn back to Isaiah chapter three or chapter 40, verse three. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Here we see what Isaiah is pointing forward to that the glory of God is going to be revealed. All flesh is going to see it. And we have the advantage, obviously, because we're standing here in, you know, 2,000 years after Christ to be able to point back and say, the glory of the Lord that's going to be revealed, Jesus. Hebrews 1 verse 3 reminds us Jesus is the full radiance of God's glory. And Isaiah is reminding the people here, you're not the main attraction. God is. God's glory through Jesus Christ is the main attraction. All that you are going through in the exile that's part of a bigger picture. And you need to remember that. They are they're called to prepare the way. They're called to, in exile, live in such a way that God is glorified. So like preparing for a king, when you would want, if a king's coming down a road, you'd probably want to make sure that road looks pretty nice and doesn't have potholes and that kind of thing. The idea here is of, you know, raise up the valleys, lower the hills, is a call to personal repentance and to make sure your society, your culture is, is lining up with God, especially as God's people. And so they're called to personal repentance, to prepare the way for the Lord. It was true for Isaiah and for the people of Israel. And in a similar way, it's true for us. 
So we're on the other side of the cross. We're not looking forward to Jesus coming to die on the cross, but we are looking forward to Jesus coming a second time. We're looking forward to the return of Christ when his glory will be made known to all people and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And so we have a part to play in that bigger story. That's both comforting to us in our hardship and also at the same time, humbling. So here are some ways we are called to prepare for the second coming of Christ. We are called to be faithful stewards. You might remember the parable in the New Testament where God or Jesus explains the, uh, the faithful stewards that there's a, the manager goes away on a trip and then he comes back to see whether his stewards are being faithful. Well, that's a parable reminding us Jesus is coming back one day and he's going to ask, are you a faithful steward? So we're called to be a faithful steward. We're called to share the gospel. That's part of being a faithful steward. We're called to encourage one another, especially as we see the day of Christ's return approaching. We're called to pray. We're called to patiently and expectantly wait, knowing that God will fulfill his promise. And so all of this is with a mindset. It's not about us. It's not ultimately about us. The people in exile in Israel, in Babylon, needed to remember it's not all about you. It's about pointing forward to God's coming glory. So this reminds me, I don't know about you, but uh, think about the Olympic Games. So the Olympic Games happen once every few years, right? And it takes years and years and years for a city to prepare to host the Olympic Games. You have to plan way out that you're going to host them. Then you have to build the facilities. Then you have to hire the right advertising and all the people that are going to run these facilities all leading up to the day of the Olympics. And on the day of the Olympics, there's probably, I don't know, hundreds, thousands of people employed just to make that day happen, those days happen, for an athlete to come in and race across the fastest, across the finish line and become, you know, glorified by the world for being the fastest athlete. All those moving parts, so many people for the few that will get the glory. And in a much, much grander way, all the people of the earth, past, present, and future, all little moving parts for the glory of the coming Christ back when Jesus came the first time and also when Jesus is coming the second time. So God comforts his people in exile with knowledge that they have a part to play in that bigger story. It's not about them, it's about him. One of the greatest comforts you will receive from God is a knowledge that this is not all about you. That'll relieve you of so much expectation from life. It's not all about you or I. It's about God's glory. Maybe another way to think of it's like a giant puzzle. So you could think of your lives or maybe even our culture or time in history as like one puzzle piece. And it might be particularly dark on that puzzle piece right now, but it's part of a beautiful picture that God is making radiating his glory. And we have to be okay if the part he's called us to play is a part that's hard, that includes suffering because it's for his glory. So I ask you, I ask me, are you okay with that? Are you okay if the time in history right now that he has called us to live in is to live in obscurity, is to live in the underground church? Are we okay with that? knowing that it's part of the bigger picture where God's glory is eventually going to be displayed. 
as a kind of sidebar, I just want to chat for a moment about one of the greatest struggles that I have as a parent, as a leader in following the Lord in discipleship. And that's this, this question of, I responded to the call of God in my life and I have made a choice to embrace suffering to a certain degree for the Lord's glory. And I want to, I want to embrace all of it. I don't know if I have the capacity on my own. God will grant that hopefully. But what really, really rocks my boat and challenges me, and maybe you as well, is what about those that are in my family or that are in my church that have not yet embraced that? And yet my actions cause them some degree of suffering and hardship. So maybe an example will help. Um, there's a pastor sitting in prison right now in Alberta. He has made that call that that's a stand he's going to take. But he has a wife and kids. I'm, I, I'm guessing he didn't take a vote and say, family, do you all vote? Any against? Oh, some are against. Okay, I won't do it. No, I don't think that's how it went. I think it's his conviction is based on God's word. But he has kids. What if his kids are, are not quite there yet? I think, they, I think they are, but I'm not actually sure. What if they're not there yet? They have to embrace the fact that when they go to school, they get the looks. When they're on social media, they're going to see people just ripping on their dad. They may have to embrace financial hardship the stigma, who knows? That's a cost that this pastor has to pay, but his kids have to pay it too. And I've wondered for myself, like, especially as trying to live a life for the Lord, and maybe you've wondered this too, how does that work? How do we do that? Are, are my kids going to grow up and despise the Lord because of the cost that they didn't get to choose? And maybe even as a church. So I know some of you here, have had to explain at work the position our elders have taken. And you may not have even come to that conclusion yet. You may not even be there, but you're feeling you have to give a defense. You may be experiencing some degree of hardship because of the position our elders have taken. And that to me is one of the greatest challenges of being a leader. Honestly, we need to pray for this pastor in prison and for the pastors that have been charged for being faithful to God's word. But I think we need to pray even more for the family members of those families. Pray for the kids of Pastor James Coates. Pray for the kids of Pastor Jacob Rayum, Pastor Mike Thiessen, Pastor Steve Richardson, Pastor Aaron Rock. These are guys who have been charged for holding church services. They have kids. And those kids may be embracing a cost that they didn't necessarily choose, but by God's grace, I think there's going to be comfort for them. So this is something that is challenging to me. I don't necessarily know that I have all the answers yet, but here's what I've found for myself. This is the best I've come up with based on God's word. Okay, if I'm going to lead others to embrace a sacrifice that they maybe have not chosen, number one, I first have to trust them to God, right? I have to trust them to God. I would rather be right with the Lord and he can take care of my kids than be wrong with the Lord and make an idol out of my children or make an idol of, out of my church family. We cannot do that. So we, number one, have to, we have to hold them with an open hand and say, Lord, we trust you with them. 
Number two, though, I think we absolutely need to remind our children, remind those that may be, you know, casualties of war, so to speak, that they have the privilege of playing a part in God's bigger story, that they can take comfort in knowing that they are part of something that God is doing and to lead them through that. This is the hardest thing, to lead people that aren't quite sure they want to suffer to suffering. But think about this. Jesus did the exact same thing with his disciples. So Jesus leads his disciples, leaves them with the Holy Spirit and calls them to go follow him at the cost of martyrdom. Jesus knew that 11 of his 12 disciples would be martyred for the faith. And yet he led them to that. He led them to that call. And so we put them again before the Lord. We trust them with the Lord and we bring in the comfort that God has provided for us and make sure they're aware of that comfort as well. Many of the exiles that would hear Isaiah's words were not the primary cause of the exile. They were probably born in exile, some of them. They were suffering because of the foolishness of kings of the past. But Isaiah reminds them here, you're part of a bigger story. God's glory is going to be worked in a big way. So hold on, there's more. So when we go to comfort others, do we make much of them or of Christ? This is again comes back to how do, we, how do we offer comfort? How do we receive it, but how do we offer it? Do we, in somebody's going through a hardship, say, oh, you're so, you're so brave and you're so amazing for going through that. That's not necessarily bad, but we need to somehow zoom the lens out and say, what you're going through is part of a bigger story meant ultimately for God's glory. And so we need to bring them to that, bring ourselves to that. And then also this, when was the last time that we reminded fellow believers that Jesus is returning? We know that. We don't know the date or the time, but we know for a fact that Jesus will return. It's a guarantee. And so we want to remind others of that. God comforts us by showing us that we are part of a bigger story. God also comforts his people by proclaiming the supremacy of his word. Everything I've said this morning, everything that we've read from the text of scripture is completely useless if God and his word are not true and eternal, if they're not found to be trustworthy. You know, I was talking with a friend this past week about a warranty for an appliance they had. The problem was the company had gone under and so the parts aren't made. The company's gone bankrupt. The warranty's useless. A lifetime warranty on something is completely garbage when the company goes out of business, right? Likewise, it would be completely useless to us for us to proclaim God's word and to teach this if God's word isn't eternal, if it's not trustworthy. So we need to know this. We need to know his word is trustworthy. Verse six says, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all beauty is like the flower. All its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Forever. So Isaiah uses a simple analogy here, comparing humanity and all of its glory to grass, right? Pretty temporary. It has a season, then it fades. And compared to God's word, God's word is the exact opposite. It will stand forever. That's comforting for us in two ways. First, God's word is true. And second, all flesh is going to fade. So if you're under an oppressive Babylonian exile, 
you are reminded right there, they're going to fade. <laughs> they are not going to last. No earthly dynasty or kingdom lasts. Every single one has been doomed to fail. There's none that endure. But God's word has been the same all the way from Isaiah's time to now. And we say that a lot around here. We say God's word never changes. It's trustworthy. It's true. You can put your life on it. But I don't know that we all are fully there yet. I know in my life, it took some time. So there's stages of a Christian life for growth. If you want to become a Christian, a follower of Jesus, the first stage is that you have to place your faith in Jesus. You have to recognize he died on the cross. He paid for your sins. You place your faith in him. You're set free. That's how you become a Christian. But you might not yet trust the authority of God's word. You might not yet believe it from cover to cover. But that's an important part that you need to come to in your discipleship. One of the most critical stages is that we receive and believe this to be God's word, that we base our lives on it, that we actually flip a switch in our mind where no matter what anybody says, this is true. This is true, and I will build my life on it. I will base my life on what God has said. And I would just urge and encourage you today, build your life on the word of God and live like it, read it, study it, understand it, work hard to learn about it and know you can depend on it. It has more to offer than the greatest universities of the world. It has more ability to transform lives than the most gifted motivational speakers. And it has thoroughly satisfied and humbled the most brilliant minds that have been on this earth. Okay, God's word has thoroughly satisfied and at the same time completely humbled people 10 times more brilliant than you and I. God's word is dependable because it's his word. It's true. It's a treasure that has never failed. It's never failed me personally. I don't have a whole lot of uh, uh, credentials to tell you, but I can tell you through humanity, God's word never fails. I might fail you. People around you might fail you. God's word doesn't fail you. So go back to it. If you're in a period of hardship and despair and even alienation from church or from believers, go back to God's word. Never abandon God's word. Go back to it and you'll be transformed for God's glory. God comforts us by proclaiming the supremacy of his word. The final way that God offers comfort to his people in exile is by declaring his great power. And here's, we're gonna read a whole bunch of scripture that's gonna show us in an awesome way, how awesome God is. When you're struggling in hardship, I've been told in counseling and kind of picked this up in culture that the, the polite thing for me to do is not to sit with you in your hardship and say, you know, my life is kind of great right now. I'm kind of really, I've got things together. It sucks that you don't, but I've got things kind of together. I've been kind of trained not to do that, right? We've been trained not to when you're sitting with somebody in hardship to say all about, talk all about yourself because that would be arrogant and foolish. But what's interesting is multiple times in scripture, when people are in hardship, what God does is absolutely talks about himself. Isn't that fascinating? In Job, he does it. And in Isaiah here, he does it. Again, for us, it's arrogance and it would be unhelpful. But for others, for God to share about himself is actually the most loving thing he could do because he's the only true source of comfort. He needs to point to how awesome he is. So let's pick up in verse nine. It says there, go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. 
Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. So God is present, like behold him. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense. It's kind of a fancy word for his compensation or his uh, provision there. His recompense before him. Verse 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather his lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So again, this is showing God's tender towards his people, right? Verse 12 continues. He who has measured the water in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shown him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? The answer is no one, just so you're clear. The answer is no one. You should be standing breathless. Oh, just like Job was. Behold, verse 15, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Assyria is nothingness. Babylon is nothingness. Canada is nothingness. Russia, US, whatever country, whatever nation is accounted as nothingness before God. That's how powerful he is. Verse 18, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a, crafts, a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. The comparison is like Isaiah later in chapters 41 through 48 highlight. This is so foolish. People make an idol out of wood. They take one half of the log and they make an idol and then the other half they put in the fire and burn it to warm themselves. And then they bow down to this wood. And we look at that and we think, that's hilarious. Who would do that? But we make our own idols that are equally transient, equally powerless when God compares himself and says, I'm nothing like that. Verse 21, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretched out the heavens like a curtain and spread them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. Remember all grass fades, right? All their beauty perishes, but the word of the Lord stands forever. This is exactly a picture of that. These nations, they are withering away. Verse 25, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and see who created these, looking at the stars likely. 
who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. Each single one. I don't remember all of your names. I try really hard. I try really, really hard. God remembers the name of every single star in the sky. And not that only, but because of the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. The roll call happens. They're all there every single night. Not one goes missing. God is incredibly powerful. He's without comparison. His word does it better than I could do it. And now we're going to see why he has made such a lengthy display of his power. Why would he tell the exiles? Why would he tell them this? Here's why. Verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Jacob felt disregarded, forgotten. God doesn't see what's going on. God reminds him, I absolutely see what's going on. I'm absolutely in power. Don't ever doubt that. Whatever hardship we're facing today, you can be assured 110%. God does not ignore it. God has not forgotten you. God sees it. Clearly, they had begun to doubt the power of God and his ability to remember them. And this is how God answers. Not by focusing in on them and telling them, hey, you're awesome. I remember you. You're awesome. No, he tells them, he's awesome. And this is what he ends saying. Verse 28, have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And this comfort, verse 29, he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. Each one of us has a limit. We can only go so far. God has no limits. He's endless in his strength. And verse 31, a very well-known verse to many of you, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That's the message to the exiled people of Israel. God's not forgotten you. He will give you strength. You got to wait on the Lord. Wait on him. Waiting on the Lord doesn't mean we're done working for the Lord and that we, you know, just check out and we're like, well, I'm just waiting. I'm waiting until Jesus comes back. I'm not doing anything else until then. Not at all. But it means receiving our strength from him. His power, receiving that. And that power gives us confidence and comfort because we know our God is in control. Our God is over all nations. We have the inside story. We got a glimpse of the big picture and we know what's going on. And we can take great comfort in that fact. The promise of his strength after seeing the, ter the terrific display of God's power is also a comforting word and one we need today. So God desires to comfort his people. On one hand, today is a very discouraging day for our nation. It's a very discouraging week and period of time. But on the other hand, we have comfort that is surpassed by nothing else. God desires to comfort his people. He desires to comfort you, A, by reminding you, it is finished. There's a little bit of stuff to play out still, but the main things are finished. God has paid for our sin. He desires to comfort you by reminding you, you are part of a bigger story. You might not love the section of the story you're in, but the big picture story is going to bring glory to God. And so play your part according to that call. 
It's for God's glory. He desires to remind you that his word is supreme. Trust it. Go to it for instruction. And he desires to comfort you by showing you his power, by promising strength for you as you wait for him. We don't know what the week ahead holds. We don't know what the month ahead holds. We don't know if we're going to be in lockdown again by Easter. But if and when there is going to be hardship of sorts, Isaiah 40, I hope you remember, is a passage to turn to. And you're like, I'm going to read that. I need that because that's what we need this morning.